On Sunday evenings, we are studying the Psalms together, so I invite you to turn to Psalm 24. It was just Providence uh, this morning that Pastor Trescar chose Psalm 24 as our call to worship. Uh, we hadn't discussed our sermons, so that was just God's leading. But tonight we look at the whole of the psalm, Psalm 24. You can find it on page 541 of your pew Bible if you'd like to use that. For those who are interested, I, I do plan to return to 1 Timothy probably at this point in the new year, uh, maybe once more in the fall, but we haven't given up on that series. But over the next uh, several months, we've planned out our preaching schedule. We have a number of missionaries reporting in the evening, at least two more that I know of, um, and of course holiday events that come up with concerts and so forth. We have a night of singing come up, coming up, so I hope you're looking forward to that. It's been a while since we've had a hymn sing. One of those is on the way as well. So for now, we'll remain in the Psalms, and tonight especially Psalm 24. Would you please stand, and I will read to you Psalm 24. A Psalm of David. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh. Strong and mighty, Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is God's word. Let's ask now his blessing on it. Father, we do come to you and know that you are Yahweh, and you are the God of hosts, of armies that all the angels of heaven stand ready to do your bidding and that you rule and reign over all things. And in the miracle of your grace, though you have everything and rule over all things, you desire to be near your people. And so as Israel opened the gates to the city and the doors to the temple and so received your holy presence in their midst, so we, through Christ, once again, welcome you to our hearts and lives, to our sanctuary, for it is your sanctuary. Our lives are yours and our hearts are yours. And we ask that you would give to us something of this spirit of celebration, that we might receive you with the joy and the honor and the glory that we see reflected so clearly in this psalm. Do this in our lives, we pray this hour, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The psalm before you is clearly divided. You can, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can see this. Probably many of your own personal Bibles show this. There are three sections or three stanzas to this psalm. 
Verses 1 and 2, you can see, is a paragraph in your Bible. And then verses 3 through 6 are a little paragraph, and then 7 through 10. So you have very much uh, three stanzas, and each stanza plays a critical role in the celebration that is occurring here. And it is a celebration. It's a celebratory psalm. It's a moment of great joy for the people of God. Now, this psalm has an amazingly rich history. And, and let me just say at the outset that as we read it, as you read it at home or as we read it today together corporately, we need to think about three major moments in the Bible for which this psalm is critical. Three moments where this psalm becomes uh, important and is used by the church in its worship. The first, of course, is the original context. David wrote this psalm almost certainly, the church has always believed this, almost certainly this psalm written by David for the coming of the Ark of the Covenant to reside in Jerusalem. So up until David's kingship, the Ark of the Covenant bounced around a little bit because of the unfaithfulness of Israel. There was even a time when someone had it outside of Israel. And you remember, whoever took it would be cursed. And finally, a faithful Jew took the Ark and he was actually blessed. But it didn't have sort of a home until David ascends to his throne, grants peace to the people of Israel. God grants him peace through victory. So David establishes the boundaries of Israel. He takes Jerusalem, uh, the city of peace, uh, the home of, Mel, of, Mel, of, Hel, of Melchizedek of old, and he makes that his capital. And at some point after that, there is some kind of ceremony. We don't know exactly where David and probably his men of war, his armies, enter Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant. And, and you can hear it here in the final part of the psalm. They shout up, open the gates, lift up the heads of the doors, open, make way for the Lord, make way for the king of glory as the Ark of the Covenant is brought to Jerusalem and established there in a tabernacle. And eventually under Solomon, that Ark of the Covenant, of course, is placed in the Holy of Holies in the temple. The Ark is a relatively small box covered in gold. It has the Ten Commandments in it and Aaron's staff, which represents the priesthood. But most importantly, on its lid, it has two cherubim guarding a small seat, which is the throne of God. And it is a visual of the Garden of Eden. You'll remember when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, we're told that two cherubim were armed and placed at the entranceway back into Eden to block mankind, sinful mankind, from that kind of close fellowship with the throne of God. And that's the picture that's happening on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so that's the, the significance, massive significance of this moment as this uh, vital sacramental presence of God is brought now into Jerusalem and you have this wonderful, wonderful psalm celebrating that moment. God has uh, given David victory over his enemies, his capital is established, and now the ark has a place to rest. And literally what happens, what would have happened is this ark is taken up and, and David's throne and God's throne room and the Holy of Holies are now side by side on top of Jerusalem. And if you have that visual and you can understand that, you'll understand many passages of the Old Testament where David talks that way. He's very aware that his throne and God's throne are side by side 
on the holy mount. So there's been great victories. So you see in verse 8, the king of glory is one who is mighty in battle. And in verse 10, who is the king of glory? The Lord of armies or hosts. That's what hosts means. It's armies. Great military victory, security and peace, a new capital. All things are kind of coming into play now. And the Ark of Covenant is arriving in Jerusalem. So major moment in redemptive history, major moment in the history of the Bible. The second, though, time this psalm was used was even more important. And it's on Palm Sunday as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem and the palms are being waved and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. We know that it was a Jewish custom that in the temple, as that was happening, Psalm 24 on Sundays was sung. So you have the priests, who hate, even who hate Jesus, some of them, who are in the temple saying, open the gates. The king of glory is here as Jesus is processing into the city to Hosanna's. And he is coming in fulfillment of these verses. He has verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, who has the right to come to the temple like this, to receive this kind of adoration. And of course, it's only the king of glory. And so all of that's happening in this psalm is sort of coming together and crystallizing. And the psalm is starting to reach its fulfillment. It's becoming even more real, even more powerful as Jesus, the ultimate king, Uh, enters into his temple and comes suddenly to his temple and casts out the money changers. And even while he's doing this, the priests, unaware that they're doing God's bidding, are singing in the temple Psalm 24 and reciting it because God knows, of course, what he's doing. So another massively important moment. One more. The church, the New Testament church, the scriptures and the church, really now for 2,000 years, has always sung this hymn, this psalm, in terms of Christ's ascension. And you can get the hints of it here, right? Uh, David says, open the everlasting doors. And there's an ambiguity there. What, What doors are ancient? What doors are eternal? And when you understand that the temple in Jerusalem is modeled after, the scriptures tell us, the temple in heaven, you understand the fullest fulfillment of this psalm, of course, is Christ's ascension. After his death and resurrection, he ascends in glory and heaven shouts as he enters open wide the eternal doors, the everlasting doors, the real temple, the one that is the original temple, the one in heaven, not the model on earth, which was always just a model, but the real one in heaven as the king of glory comes in his victory. He's mighty in battle. And he's won the victory, and so he enters into heaven. And so as you look through all the liturgies of the different Christian communities of the past, Psalm 24 is always sung with Palm Sunday and whenever the church celebrates the ascension of Jesus into heaven. So that's our context. The context is the threefold victory of God. The victory in David's day and the coming of the ark the victory in Jesus' coming to his temple as a sacrifice for sin, and then the final victory of completing his work and entering the heavenly temple in glory. Having those three things before us, I think, is key as we now enter into the verses. I want to go through them with you and see the picture this gives us of victory and how it calls us 
to rejoice in God and to rejoice in his victory over all things. So let's look at these stanzas together. Once again, the first stanza is verses 1 and 2. And they remind us of this, that when we welcome God, we are welcoming our creator. When we are welcoming God, when we are praising God, we are praising our creator. So verse 1 literally in Hebrew reads this way, to Yahweh, to Yahweh, the earth belongs and all its fullness, everything it is belongs to him. And then if you want to read Hebrew poetry better, uh, we often as Americans, when we read a second line of a poem in Hebrew, we think it's just a repetition, but it's not. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then you can almost insert the words here. What's more, the world and all those who dwell within. So not just the trees and the plants and the animals, but all the peoples of the world. They all belong to him. He is the creator. And that means, to put it in modern terms, he is the definer. He defines what we are. He has declared what we are. His word is final on what we are and what our world is. Our seasons continue. Our earth spins. Everything happens because he reigns over his creation as the creator God. And then verse 2, David reminds us why. Well, he, because or for, he's founded it upon the seas. He's founded it upon the seas and he's established it upon the rivers. Ancient people uh, universally, and this isn't wrong, it was just the way they thought, thought of the sea as chaos. They thought of the sea as unformed. You can't live on it. It's dangerous. It's murky, right? And you go back to Genesis, and what are we told before the world is created? That the Spirit hovered over the waters. The earth originally was waters. There was nothing habitable. And God comes in his power through the Holy Spirit, the spoken word that is Christ, and brings order out of that chaos and creates inhabitable land. And David's reminding us, this is who we're worshiping. This is who we're welcoming. This is who comes uh, sacramentally through this Ark of the Covenant. It is no one less than the God of creation. Now, why, why does he begin this way? Why not jump right away to verse 7 and just say, lift up your heads, open the gates, King of glory is here. What is he doing here? I think this is a vital orientation here in verses 1 and 2. Remember, in David's day, everyone and I do mean everyone, believed that gods were tribal. Everyone believed that their God had power in certain places and not in other places. That he was their God, but not necessarily the God of other people. Much as today, most Western people believe that there is no one truth, right? You have people, friends, unbelievers will say to you, well, I'm happy for you, that's your truth. And that sounds very sophisticated, but it's actually very ancient. It goes back about six or 7,000 years to this idea that the God who is coming now through the Ark of the Covenant to his temple in Jerusalem is God of the Jews, sure, but not God of all the other peoples. He's regional. He's tribal. And so what I think David is doing here is at the very beginning of his hymn, he's reminding the people, don't think... That as the ark enters Jerusalem, we now have sort of the corner on God. 
that he's now located somehow in Jerusalem, and, and this is sort of the hub of his activity, and he's fairly powerless once you get outside the boundaries of our land. That's how everyone thought around them. That was their natural way of thinking about the world. And David is reminding them that that is not true, that instead God is the creator God. This is what made Israel different than every other people alive at the time. It's what makes us different than everyone else in our culture, is the belief in one true God who is everybody's God, whether they acknowledge it or not. As we often say uh, from the pulpit here, everyone already has a relationship with God. Everyone. He is your creator. You can hate it. You can love it. You can fight it. It does not matter. He is the creator God of all things and all people. And as the Ark of the Covenant comes up, David is reminding them, Yahweh is the Lord of all the earth. And so everything we have, everything we have, our gifts, our looks, our abilities, our money, our cars, our homes, this church, everything then is just on loan. Everything is rented, right? We have to answer to the God of creation for everything we have because nothing came from us. It's all given. I believe this is the heart of the crisis that's going on in our times. Am I free to redefine myself, to engage in invasive surgeries, to take invasive drugs, to try and change my gender, to somehow shake my fist at the creator and redefine myself? Who defines me? And the Bible is very clear. Yahweh reigns over all people. He gives shape to the earth. He gives to you as a gift your identity, your gifts, your abilities, your looks, your eye color. Everything about it is a gift from his hands, and he reigns over all of it and even over people who hate him. We can often, I think as Christians, even as Christians, fall into the delusion, the delusion of ownership, the delusion that we own something we have, rather than understanding that everything is on loan from God. And you know what happens when we reject this teaching, when we believe that we own something, we then abuse it, right? This is where slavery comes from, human trafficking, horrible acts where we pollute the earth in ways that are terrible, which we've done in the past. It's because we think we own it. But the Bible very clearly teaches that no government owns us, no corporation owns us. We don't own anything. Nobody does. It's all on loan. Our national founders, uh, the men who started our country, were not perfect men. Uh, they were sinners. They were flawed. Not everything they did was perfect, but you know what? They really tried to get this idea into our heads when they wrote that our rights were endowed by our creator. They understood, and they wrote about this, that if your government gives you your rights, if your Lord defines you, then you are always a slave and always owned by someone else. But rather, they wanted to point out this idea that God is the creator and therefore everything we have is from him. And that's the picture that David wants us to start with. As we enter into this celebration, we're not to think for one moment that this is a regional deity, that when Jesus entered heaven or when Jesus entered the temple on Palm Sunday or when the ark went into the temple, that this affects just a few people or is relevant only for those who believe. 
but rather that the God we're speaking of has founded the earth upon the seas and rules over all things. Some of you, I know, like I do, love uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation. And my Sunday school class knows that Revelation 4 and 5 are among my absolute favorite places in Scripture and probably the ones that when I sit and read, uh, you, you get those chills, you know, of just being completely overwhelmed. That's what Revelation 4 and 5 is for me, always has been for many years. And you remember the vision there. John sees a door open. He goes up into heaven. And what he sees, and we don't have time to read it here tonight, but what he sees, let me just remind you, is the God of creation enthroned. There are four living creatures surrounding the throne, and they are part of all the different animals of earth, including humans. And they are all worshiping and crying out. And everything from the rainbow to the sea of glass, all of it is designed to say, this is the God of creation of everything, who rules over and has dominion over all our created reality. So even as we worship the Lord here in this place, even as we come to the Lord's Supper tonight, we're never to think, yes, God is with us. Very true. We'll get to that in a moment. But we are never to think that he is just here or confined to us or somehow limited by us, but rather he reigns over all things and is the God of all people, whether they acknowledge it or not. So verses 1 and 2 provide a vital, vital orientation for the people of God as they worship the Lord and welcome the Ark of the Covenant. Then second of all, in the second verse, verses 3 through 6, a second important point of orientation is made by David. As this moment is happening, remember this is a moment of tremendous religious significance. David asks the question in these verses, who has a right to be a part of this liturgy? Who has a right to be a part of this holy, holy moment as the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple or as Christ ascends into heaven? Who gets to be a part of that? Look at verses 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who can do this? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, that is to an idol, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. I don't know how many of you got a chance recently to see anything of the queen's funeral, Uh, Queen Elizabeth's death, of course, Uh, When she died, uh, it may be that she was the last uh, Christian queen uh, that the world may ever see. We don't know, but it's possible. Um, She spoke very openly of her faith. We don't know, of course, what was hidden in her heart. But I can tell you I would listen to her Christmas messages every year, and they were full of the gospel. And it was uh, so encouraging to see a nation that would actually broadcast uh, their sovereign talking about Christ's birth at Christmas. Um, We don't know what her faith was personally, but if you saw any of those events, you know that the people, right, the crowds were allowed certainly kind of close to the casket, but there were ropes, right? There were roped off areas where you had to be immediate family, you had to be a royalty or a guard or a priest, 
in the Anglican Church to get into those areas. And when you look at Westminster Abbey and the great churches of Scotland and Ireland and England, and even here in the United States, there are sections, aren't there? You've seen this in cathedrals. There's a section where the people go, and then there's almost always some kind of gate behind which only the priests go, and then there's sometimes even areas where no one goes. The question that David is asking here is who has the right to take the Ark of the Covenant, the throne room of God seated on top there, and enter into the Holy of Holies and put this in the tabernacle? Who has a right to be a part of this celebration, to go into these very reserved places, to go behind the ropes, if you will, and participate in this moment of tremendous uh, significance? Now, there's two answers the Bible gives this, and I want to uh, give them to you tonight. And, and David, I think here, is thinking of both these. I think he has both in mind, and we need to keep both in mind to understand verses 3 through 6. The first is this. David knows, ultimately, I believe, that only someone who has been given eternal life can enter through the ultimate gates and come into the presence of God. To put it in the words of the Apostle Paul, mortality, what we are now, cannot inherit immortality. To enter into this place, to ascend the hill of the Lord, the ultimate hill of the Lord in heaven, the new Jerusalem, one must be made again, must be reborn through Christ. We must receive an alien righteousness, a righteousness not our own, through Christ. We can never be in a position, in other words, there's never a time where we have God sort of over, uh, over a bench and can force him, compel him to let us in, right? It is only through grace and through the grace that Christ gives. However, I don't think that's David's main point here. Uh, David has in mind here, I think in verses 3 through 6, a faithful Jew. And what he's saying is, a faithful member of the covenant community can participate in this service. He doesn't mean perfect righteousness. He knows that doesn't exist. But he has here in mind someone who is walking with the Lord, is the way we put it today. And so he speaks of someone who has clean hands and a pure heart. It doesn't mean don't absolutize that again. Don't think, well, to have a clean hands and pure heart, you're talking about perfection. Well, then no one could be a part of this service. That's not what he's thinking. He's thinking here, I think, of someone who is prepared, prepared to come into the presence of God. Clean hands suggest ritual purity. This is uh, his men, probably himself, as they have prepared themselves for this very sacred moment. It's someone who does not lift up his soul to what is false. In the Old Testament, the word for false equals usually idol. So that's the idea there. The lifting up your soul, it's a euphemism, right? It's an image of someone who secretly is worshiping other gods. Remember, when this was written, many people had in their homes little personal gods so they could interact with their ancestors. And so you could go to temple on Saturday and seem like you're a very faithful Jew and then go home on Monday or Tuesday and in the privacy of your home have these little idols these other side things going on. Maybe you pray a little to Baal, maybe a little to Asherah and the other gods. And David's saying that person cannot participate meaningfully in the coming of God because their heart is divided. They secretly oppose him. 
David knows this. He knows this about Israel. Not everyone in Jerusalem supported his kingship. Not everyone in Jerusalem was happy to see the Ark of the Covenant come. Many were wayward. He knew, he knew that. And then lastly, David says, someone who doesn't swear deceitfully. Again, this is probably just a summary of the whole second table of the law. Someone who is walking in integrity. Remember, in this society, there's no video cameras. There's no lights at night. So everything that happens in this society is done by word, by your word, by you giving your word. And so he's saying the man or woman who can participate in this holy liturgy, this tremendous moment, it's not the perfect person because there are none, but it's someone who's walking in faithfulness with God. And then he cites what he has in mind there in verse 6. He's thinking of Jacob and those who are of the generation of Jacob. Well, who, who's the generation of Jacob? Remember, Jacob's greatest moment is when he wrestles with Christ and he says, I will not let you go till you bless me and receives the blessing. And David is saying here, those who are wrestlers with God, those who cling to God, despite their failings and their sin, and Jacob had failings and sins in spades, right? But the thing about Jacob was he also clung to God. He wrestled with everybody. <laughs> you know, he had problems with everyone. But he clung to God. He persevered in faith. And I think that's what David is saying here. That the one who clings to the Lord truly, not perfectly, but truly, is the one seeking him. And that's the generation. Verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So he's not talking about perfectionism here, but rather true believers seeking to follow God. It's almost certainly, we can't prove it, but I think it's almost certain that this verse was in the mind of Jesus when he wrote that famous line or spoke that famous line, which was later written, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's what's offered here that the people seeing this and participating in this and enjoying it and taking uh, grace from it are those who love God. As we come to the supper tonight, that's exactly the situation. It's not a supper for perfect people because there aren't any. And the truth is, every time we have the Lord's Supper, if you really wanted to, you could find an excuse not to come, couldn't you? There's some failure, some weakness, some struggle, some issue. But it is a place for Jacob's. It is a place for the generation of Jacob, sincere believers who do not worship an idol and are seeking to love and serve the Lord. So David begins by orienting us. This is the God of creation, not bound to one place, not bound to this supper, not bound to this one church. Second, the people who should come are those who are sincere, not perfect, but sincere, who like Jacob are seeking a blessing. And then lastly, in verses 7 through 10, the moment of celebration arrives. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. These are probably David and his soldiers as they approach either the temple gates or the city gates, or maybe both. Maybe that's why it's repeated twice. Once for the city, once for the temple. So they say this, this is a responsive reading, and then um, there's a response from the priests probably 
who is this king of glory? And David and his men respond, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. And then it's repeated in verses 9 and 10. Again, David says, lift up your gates, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient or everlasting doors, that the king of glory may come in. And the priests would have asked, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Now, we don't know if this, again, was just the gates of Jerusalem or the gates leading into the temple or maybe even the, the great doors that closed off the, ultimately the temple, but at this stage would have been the tabernacle. There would have been hangings that kept people out. We don't know what David had in mind, but I think it's fair to say he probably had all those things in mind. The opening of the gates, the opening of hearts, everyone rising and opening themselves to the presence of the creator God as he enters in. And the very way he words it here actually is ambiguous. Scholars have wrestled for years whether this language in Hebrew means the opening of literal gates or it can be, and there's reason to think this, that what he's actually saying, the gates are symbolic of the elders and leaders of the people and he's calling on them to stand up, to rise in joy and in celebration and in reverence as the Ark of the Covenant comes in. And the bottom line is it could be either. And I personally think that David, pun intended, left the door open to it being either. Because what's pictured here is the, the opening of our whole lives, our whole hearts, the whole city of God to the king of glory. Glory, of course, God's weight. That's what the word literally means. His fullness, his riches, his beauty. He is no tribal deity here. But he is the king of glory drawing near. So this is a psalm of great celebration. It's a celebration uh, that we have a part in as Christians, as Christ comes in salvation and draws near to us, as we come to him in worship, as we come to the table tonight and draw near to him. And he draws near to us. There's a, there's a sense in which every time we come to the Lord's table, we could say to each other, lift up your gates. Open your heart. The Lord of glory is drawing nigh. So there are lessons here for us. Uh, we need uh, application of this psalm to our lives. That we come with joy to worship the Lord. That in private we worship with him in joy. And in all those places, private and public, we welcome him with joy and worship as the one who draws near. That's our probably first application and simplest. But there's a second it's not just, Psalm 24 is not just a lesson for how God's people are to receive the presence of God. It, it certainly is that. But it is also a prophecy of what Christ would do. This is a psalm that Christ fulfilled. It is evangelistic, like all the psalms. Christ-centered and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see it all through it, don't you? Verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart. When was that fulfilled? Was it fulfilled with David? We know what David was. Was it fulfilled with the priests? We know what the priests were. They had to bring sacrifices first for their own sin and then for the sins of the people. When was it fulfilled? When did it fully come true? It was always true. But when did it reach its fullness? Only in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The author of Hebrews reminds us that when Christ died on the cross after his death, he ascended into the true temple in heaven. The truly everlasting doors were opened and he ascended with his own blood and made sacrifice for our sins. And so above everything else, yes, there's lessons here for us welcoming God. But above everything else, this psalm is about Christ. It preaches the gospel to us once again, that we might believe that as God has planned, so he has accomplished, that through his son, this psalm has come true. And through this psalm, we now have entry into the Holy of Holies through Christ, the righteous man, the descendant of Jacob, who wrestled with darkness and prevailed. So here, see here a model for your own life, but more importantly, see here a proclamation of the gospel. Now let's turn our thoughts to the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus draws near to us through the supper. He is present in us as Christians. We know that. But this is a place, much like when the ark came up, God is everywhere. David knew that. He says that at the beginning of the psalm. But he also understood that in the coming of the ark, just as in the day of Palm Sunday, there was a drawing near of the presence of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that at the Lord's Supper, some in the early church were either killed then or afterwards, and some became sick. That's because the Lord is everywhere, yes, but draws near to us in certain places by his choosing and his decree. And this is one of those places. So as I close this in a prayer and close our sermon, I ask you to take a few moments to prepare your hearts, to open wide the gates of your hearts, for the King of glory is drawing near. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the way in which you fulfilled this psalm. We thank you that your heart was pure, your hands were clean. And so when you brought your blood into the temple, it washed away all our sin. We do come now to this supper which you have established, and we come with fear and reverence, knowing that you have promised to meet us here, that all true believers who come here meet with you really, truly, and spiritually. So give us now hearts of repentance and help us to be ready